Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. Colossians chapter 1, and we are going to spend our time in verses 1 through 8. If you were here with us last week, you remember the setup for what was going on. If not, please go ahead and check that out on the, online on the podcast because it is a lot of information, and I believe that it is a lot of very important information. So, Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 1 and going through verse 8, these are the words of God. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world also. It is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day that you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant in Christ, on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. A couple of pieces of context, uh, pieces of background information that I think are uh, worth noting when we're looking at the book of Colossians. Number one is that Paul and Timothy both are the ones writing this letter. It's quite an impressive idea that Paul and Timothy would write a letter to another church, but Timothy is a part of Paul's doing in a lot of uh, situations, so is Silas, and the same thing is true when we read the epistles of Peter. Most people don't connect the idea that Mark was uh, a very close confidant to Peter, and there was a large likelihood that Mark was a part of those epistles as well. Another thing of context that is worth noting, it's something that you can study on your own if you are um, if you're inclined to do so is that these letters were not written in isolation so Paul didn't go hunker down somewhere and just kind of uh, pen some things he was often uh, using a scribe or somebody was using a scribe. There are letters that Paul said, I wrote this with my own hand. Make sure you know that. Uh, Peter will, uh, will be recorded as, as somebody else scribing what he is writing. This is why uh, commentators or different scholars believe that there uh, seems to be a strange difference between the wording in 1 Peter and 2 Peter. It's not because Peter didn't author it. It's because everything in that time, or many things in that time, were, were written down via a scribe. Well, another thing about letters is that they were written in somewhat of a communal nature. Now, I'm not suggesting that uh, they took votes on what they should put in each line. The Spirit of God is clearly inspiring the words on this page. He is, he is moving men along in what they're penning to the church they're writing to, and for future churches, which is where we come in. 
But being that it's written in a communal, uh, a communal nature, Timothy is clearly a part of this. And I think that this is a powerful idea in training people. This is something that I think we've lost in many, uh, many of our churches. There is not a lot of come beside me, apprenticeship kind of ideas. Come beside me and watch how we work this out. Look at how we understand the gospel. Look at how we rightly divide the word of truth. It's something that we try to do every Tuesday night in our elders group. We simply have a meal together. We enjoy uh, each other's company. And then we open the scriptures and we begin to war- work our way through them. And sometimes it's epiphany moments. Sometimes we're walking through it and we're just like, oh my, that is not what I remember the the scripture saying, or that's not exactly how I've heard that taught. Other times it's, there it is. I love that. That reinforces the belief that I've always had or the belief that I was taught when I was young. And sometimes there's challenge. Sometimes we look at it and we go, hold on a second. Is that what that says? Uh, it's an amazing thing, but what I'm getting at there is not the, not the communal nature of, of understanding Scripture, but rather the fact that coming together in a community setting is helpful in our growth. And it was clearly helpful in their writing of these epistles. So I encourage you to write that down and study it for yourself. It's a very, uh, it's a very interesting um, uh, understanding to grow in. The, the company uh, that is with both uh, Timothy and Paul is very interesting company. Uh, Epaphras is right there alongside them. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 4 real quick. Um, you're going to see this at the end. He says this in verse 12, I believe it is. He says, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bondservant, or a bond slave of Jesus Christ sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. How many of you would like to have an Epaphras on your side? Not only the one who preached the gospel to you, not only the one who led you to a relationship with Jesus, but one who the scripture says he is laboring earnestly for you in prayer prayer so that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. That's an amazing relationship that we're looking at here. So so Paul and Timothy are at least, the two of them are together in the writing of this letter. And at the end of it, all of a sudden you see this name come back in. It's a name that we find in the beginning of chapter 1. But this Epaphras guy, who is actually the one who proclaimed the gospel to them. Look in chapter 1 at verse 7. Just as you learned it... It is referring to the gospel. That's the antecedent there. So uh, as you learned it, the gospel, from Epaphras, the very one who's laboring for you in prayer. It's, he is our bond servant or our fellow bond servant who is, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. So it's not only cool to have somebody who's praying for you constantly, but it's really cool to have somebody who's bragging on the faith that is exhibited in your life. That there is, there is fruit that's being produced inside of your life. So that's a pretty awesome thing. Now there's, there's three things that Paul and Timothy and maybe even Epaphras praise God for within the Colossian church. And those three things are as follows. Faith, chapter 1, verse 2, and verse 4. Love, chapter 1, verse 4. And hope, 
That's chapter 1, verses 5 through 6. So let's make sure that we see that uh, clearly again. Starting at verse 4, he says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So all three of those components we're seeing right there, often referred to as the triad of Christian virtues. These are, these are things that are very important to uh, the Christian church. So uh, we see these articulated elsewhere in Scripture. If you're a note taker, you want to write these down so that you can see them. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13. Galatians chapter 5, verse 5 through 6. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 3. And 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8. Most of us recognize that uh, triad of Christian virtue as said this way. Faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. And what is the greatest church? It's love. Look at what 1 Corinthians 13, 13 says. You guys can see it on the screen. But now, faith, hope, love, abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. I think it's important to remember that in all eternity, three things are going to abide. Faith, hope, and love. It's always going to be there. And I'll explain why those things are important as we walk through the message today. But faith, hope, and love are always going to abide. The greatest, however, of these three virtues is what we call love. And again, I'm going to explain why I believe that that's the case. Today, I want to connect these three virtues with their location. Now, I'll explain that as we go, but I believe that every one of these virtues has a place or has a location uh, from which they flow, and you'll understand that uh, as we go. Also, we'll, we're going to see that this all connects with what is talked about, with what we talked about last week, which is choosing God's way over man's way. Again, this is how Paul is setting up that uh, Colossian heresy that we talked about last week, chapters 2 and 3. And it gets to the core issue. So what was the core issue from last week? If you didn't write it down last week, I want you to write it down this week. Here's what it was. Paul is writing to combat man-made philosophies and traditions that are setting themselves up against God's ways. And I stressed this last week. I'm going to stress it again. It is Paul writing to combat man-made philosophies over and against God-made philosophies, because God doesn't care about philosophy. God just doesn't care much for your philosophy. We are humans. We, make, we are sinful. We are fallen creatures, right? And so God has philosophies. It's simply a study of knowledge. That's all philosophy is. That's all that the book of Proverbs is about. It's the study of knowledge and to gain wisdom. So God doesn't have a problem with philosophy. God doesn't have a problem with tradition. Did you know that? God doesn't have a problem with tradition. God has a problem with our traditions. He has a problem with man-made traditions that set themselves up against the God of the Bible. God also clearly doesn't have a problem with principles because the Great Commission is go into all the world and teach them to obey. Make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I command. Do you know what another term for principle is? command. And so God has principles. God has commands. And he doesn't have a problem with those things. He just continues to have a problem with ours. And why does he have problems with ours? For the same reason that God has a problem with idolatry. What happens is we set something up in place of God. 
And listen, church, we can do that with ourselves. We can do that with our ideology. We can do that with our denominations. We can do that with our personal you know, convictions and opinions. We've got to be careful. I had a conversation this week that was really interesting in that uh, we were talking, uh, the person I was talking with was, uh, was referring to certain convictions in the Scripture, certain things that the Scripture said quite clearly. And the, and the question was, I know that the Bible says it clearly, but why is it that I don't feel the Spirit of God convicting me towards that thing? Now, we're not talking about sin here. We're talking about the Spirit of God opening your understanding or growing you in a particular thing. This was the heart of this conversation. And the statement was made that said, uh, I don't know about that particular biblical teaching, but what I do know is that I've never felt the Spirit of God tell me that that's something that I need to be a part of. And my caution... My caution, because how many of you know that there are things that the Spirit of God says in the Scripture that are for men? Okay, women don't have to necessarily worry so much about that. There are things in the Scripture that are for women. How many of you know that? That men don't necessarily have to consider. So we're not, I'm not painting a picture of a sinful conversation. I'm painting the picture of a really good and productive conversation. And I said, only thing I would caution you with is to make sure that you don't allow what you feel in your heart, what's going on in your mind, to override a clear instruction in Scripture. Because here's the deal. The Bible's right, and you're wrong. <laughs> right? So this is important. The Bible's right, and you're wrong. And just because you don't feel something, here's what my thought is. Maybe your feeler's broken. I think your feeler's broken, okay? This is really, really important. And church, this goes to so many areas of our life. There are so, every one of us here, I hope we're going to be honest with this, every one of us here has these areas in our life and we kind of hold them back and we go, mm, I feel like this is the better way to go about it. Do you know what that is? If it's not sin yet, you know what that is? That can be a temptation leading you to a man-made philosophy. A man-made idea that you are going to hold to. And sometimes, church, we're willing to fight to the death over this kind of foolishness. And God goes, how about you just let it die? How about you just put it on the cross? Because that's where it needs to be. Okay? So uh, I share that story with you just simply to say this. Caution yourself. Be, be cautious. Uh, if you don't feel the Spirit of God convicting you about something, read its context. Figure out what he is saying. Maybe he's not talking to you. That's fine. That's fine. Maybe he isn't legitimately. But if he is, your feeler's broken. And you need to switch. <laughs> you need to say, God, I'm welcoming what you have to say. So the first of these three Christian virtues, I'm just hitting everything today. The first of these Christian virtues that I want to deal with is faith. We're going to actually move in Paul's order in Colossians. So we're going to go faith, love, and then we're going to go into hope. So let's start with faith, faith first. Here's what verses 2 and 4 say yet again. Verse 2, To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now skip down to verse 4. He says, he's given thanks for them, Since we heard, that's why they're giving thanks, Since we heard of your Faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. Now, there's a couple of things that I would like you to um, 
I'd like you to explore inside of this. Um, that first, we have a location for this particular faith. Can you spot that location? The, the faith in this. He says, your faithful brethren in Christ. This is important. And then verse 4, since we have heard of your faith in Christ. So we have to make sure that we're understanding the location of faith. In verse 2, Paul says, to the holy ones, I love that. If you're, a, if you're a note taker, you can circle that in your Bible. When it says saints, it's actually a Greek term that is pronounced hagios. And hagios is interpreted literally as holy ones. Let me ask you a quick question. We're going to get into how this all plays out in faith. We need to see the location, but then we're going to play it out. So when you think of the term saint, what comes to your mind? Nobody wants to answer me this morning. St. Peter, St. Paul, right? We're, I mean, we're, we're located in a distinctly German Catholic town, so that would make total sense. And so maybe we're thinking of saints. We're thinking of veneration. We're thinking of uh, exaltation of certain people. But interestingly enough, this term doesn't come with the same baggage that we think through. How many of you know that the Scripture says that those who belong to Jesus are all saints? Right? We, we, don't, we don't need some really cool highfalutin saints, and then there's Nathan, okay? We don't need that. And that's not just me being jealous. I'm just simply saying that that's not the way the Scripture talks about it. Now, the, the Bible does tell us that there are places of authority, doesn't it? It does tell us that there are places of authority and that those places are worthy of double honor. But with that double honor comes serious scrutiny, God is holding them to a higher standard in those higher places of honor. But this term, hagios, is so vital to me. It's something that I don't want you to miss today. This may seem like a little bit of a rabbit trail for you, but the term hagios is holy ones. And the term hagios or holy is used over 120 times in the New Testament. And every time we see the name of the Holy Spirit, it's hagios spirit. When God says that we are his holy ones, that we are the holy ones of God, we are, he is communicating that we are a unique divine people. We're not little gods, that's not what I'm getting at, but what I am telling you is that we are his people. We are his people, and it is an absolute beautiful truth. In the Old Testament, the transliterated word for this, in the Old Testament, hagios, or, or holy ones, or spiritual people, also refers to the heavenly hosts. So we are keeping company in this term. Every time Paul uses this, hagios, we are keeping company not with a bunch of dead men and statues on uh, cathedral walls. We're keeping company with God's heavenly host, with a great cloud of witnesses. It's a much bigger picture for us to have when we're reading through this scripture. So he says, to the holy ones, and then he uses this next term, to the faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. There's two words for faith that I want you to see here, and they're the same root word. There's pistis, which is faith, and there's pistos, which is faithful. This is, uh, this is teaching us about fidelity. It's, it's, it's the same term that you would say when you have a faithful husband or a faithful wife. Okay, She or he is 
uh, faithful to you. They trust you and are trustworthy in this context. So Paul starts off and he says, to the holy ones and to the pistos or to the faithful, those of fidelity, those brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And then in verse 4 he says, since we heard of your, this is pistis, right? Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, this is trust. Remember what faith means, church. Trust, and that is all. It's very clear that without faith, it's impossible to please God. We read that in Hebrews 11.6, right? But we should always keep in mind that faith has to have an object. Faith has to have a location. It is faith in Christ Jesus, okay? Make sure you see this. In this case, Paul wants the Colossians to understand that he is actually praising God for them, and their trust in Jesus, not that they have some spiritual superpower called faith that they exercise. It's not what he's talking about. He's not saying, man, I'm so glad I saw that spiritual superpower of faith because I've seen lots of mountains rearranged since I came the last time. That's, that's not what he's getting at here. What he's getting at is a deep and abiding trust in Jesus Christ. As Christians who are growing in maturity, we are learning not only to have faith in Jesus, but we're also learning to have faith in what he says. This is another sublocation uh, of faith that I want you to, I want you to uh, keep your mind on. In Hebrews 11.6, whatever is done not of faith, that's a sin. We, we have to live by faith. Um, it goes on to say something very powerful. I'm going to have him put it up on the screen. So Hebrews 11:6 6 says this, And without faith it's impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is. Stop there. Why would you even pray to God if you didn't believe he is? You see what I'm getting at? This is it's actually a line that makes most atheist lives, and I, I have deep respect for all people on this planet, deep respect for humanity in general. I, I want to have conversations with those people. That's a really important thing. But anybody who, uh, who professes to not believe in any God, it always astounds me when catastrophe comes into their life and they start praying to the God they don't believe exists. Even worse than that, you might know an atheist that says, I don't pray to God, so that's a moot point for you with me. Okay, that's fine, but most atheists are deeply angry at the God they believe doesn't exist. Why is that? I'm confused. What are you so miffed about? I mean, he's not there. So are you angry at your imaginary friend that you had when you were four? I mean, I don't really just mean to antagonize in that. It's just absurd, and I want to point out the absurdity of it. So he goes on, and he says, you must, if you're going to come to God, you must believe that he is. But I love this next line. This is where Christians need to develop a deep understanding of God. He, you must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. In what testament does Hebrews appear? The old or the new? The new. So this isn't some sort of uh, idea that we get to throw away because we go, oh, that's Old Testament works anything. No. God is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And that God said that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. What are we supposed to do, church? Seek him. 
We're supposed to humble ourselves. Our faith needs to be in the location of God, but it also needs to be in the location of what God says. He is the word after all. And so that, that's an important idea for us to keep in our minds. So Hebrews eleven six tells us just what I believe is an absolutely powerful idea. So uh, what's cool here, though, is that I believe in my observations of our church, um, the same thing that I see Paul seeing, and Timothy for that matter, and Epaphras for that matter, I believe that I see the same things in our church that he sees or that they see in Colossae. And I praise God that he's doing this. Here's what, here's what I see, and I want, you to, I want you to hear me. I see a group of people that make mistakes. Duh. Okay, with that out of the way, because if you're not going to agree with me there, we, already, <laughs> we have another series of problems. But I see a group of people that make mistakes. I see a group of people that still, whether we want to admit this boldly or not, we still sin and we still fall short of the glory of God. Don't we? Do we have to? It's a different story. You've been given everything you need pertaining to life and godliness, but I really didn't mean that, so you're stuck in sin. That's not, that's not what the Bible says. What the Bible says is that God has called you out of something. He has given you gifts. He's given you abilities. He's given you his word. He's given you brothers and sisters. He's called you to righteousness. But here's the beautiful truth of the Bible. If you sin, and look it up in your Bibles. It does say if, not when. If you sin, he is faithful and just to forgive all those who confess that sin of unrighteousness. Guess what the MO of the church is? Humility. The MO of the church is repentance. We're always going to be your repentant people, church. So I see this in our church. I see a, a group of people that sin and fall short of the glory of God. But here's what I also see. I, have, I see a group of people that when they do, run to Jesus to fix it. Do you know what I mean? Last week, it's just an amazing um, Amazing story, so I just keep wanting to brag on it. So just like the Apostle Paul, just like Epaphras is bragging on the Colossians. Last week, um, my family, my brother and his family, are, are just in the middle of a really, really bad situation. So I, I'm asking you to pray for them. But a person in our church came three times throughout the week. This was the week before and then came again this week. Uh, but three times to come and just to pray for that situation. Could have done anything else. Could have just said, you know what, the typical like Facebook prayer, Psh, I'll pray for you. <laughs> sure. I have to admit, guys, there are times I've said I'll pray for you, and I haven't, and I apologize for that. But this person came and just spent some time praying for my brother and his family, Pr spent some time praying that God would break through in that situation. What do I see in that? I see somebody who believes that God is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's actually what I see in our church. I see faithful people. Now, is there a reason why I harp on holiness or harp on walking after God? There's many reasons. Number one, your flesh really does try to get a hold of you. How many of you go to work on Monday morning and you're like, wow, there's that flesh again? 
It just creeps right back in. Your flesh tries to get a hold of you. Your memory is also short. No matter how much you pride yourself in your memory, your memory's short. You, you don't remember what God said. And you struggle with those things. This is, again, church, why the scripture tells us to always uh, have his word uh, on our hearts and minds to meditate on it day and night. But what I love about this, I see that our church is walking in faithfulness. And the reason we slip back into sin is we have short memories. The reason we slip back into sin is because we have a flesh, a flesh that keeps rearing its ugly head. We just give way to it. I think the reason we jump, I am hard on holiness or hard on those particular things is because the church at large today doesn't preach it. The church at large today preaches a message that says, come as you are and stay as you were. After all, this whole thing's by grace, right? You have a fundamental misunderstanding of grace. It is God's grace. I know that this is hard to hear. It is God's grace that he didn't strike you dead with a lightning bolt. It's God's grace that he keeps putting up with your stubbornness. It's God's grace that he says, I'll forgive you of sin after I redeemed you. He doesn't have to. Could you imagine that? This, my view of it, hey, I paid this big price for you, and that's how you're going to repay me? Bye. Come on. I'm not the only one here that thinks that way. And Jesus goes, I paid that price for you. This is how you repay me? I'll forgive you if you'll humble yourself. I love you. I want to change you. This is what I see in our church. I don't see a group of people that have it all right. And I sure don't look in the mirror and see a person who has it all right. But I see a people who deeply want to follow Jesus. And I hope that you know that when I go on these uh, soapboxes or these messages on holiness, it is only because the word of God commands. That's what a people of grace do. Amen. So if we connect this with last week's message, if we connect faith and faith having the object of Christ Jesus and faith having the object which is what God calls us to do, then uh, we can all see why Paul actually, actually tells these Christians, uh, warns these Christians against man-made philosophies because they're already being faithful to God. Why would they want to change that? Why would they want to sacrifice that? You're already walking after him. You've already sacrificed your life. You've already picked up your cross. Why in the world would you go back to the things which imprisoned you before? Same message that Paul preaches is the message that I constantly refer to week after week. Faith and trust in man is not what saves. Faith and trust in you is not what saves. Faith and trust in your denomination or affiliation is not what saves. Faith and trust in the word of God and the one who is the word of God is all that matters. And it's all that will change you. So number two, next we deal with love. Love is referred to as the greatest of the three Christian virtues, 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Now, the reason that I believe that this is the case, that love is the, the, the paramount of all that, is this, that while hope seems to be uh, the object of our faith, that's the object of our faith, God makes a promise, uh, 
And we put our faith in that great hope, okay? Hope is the object of our faith. Faith seems to convey the attitude of the heart. That is where trust comes from. That's where, we, that's where we rely on people or that's where we put our trust in. But love is what puts all of that on display. This is why I believe the scripture tells us that love is the greatest of these. Because love is an action. Love is a display, not of our own glory, but instead of the showing of the fruit that God has produced in our lives because we truly are born again. This display leads to the glorification of the Father and not the people that he's redeemed. Can we brag on our church? Can we say, here's what's so amazing about our church, they're faithful. Yes, but what are we bragging on? We're bragging on the one we put our faith in, ultimately. Because you can put your faith in a teddy bear and it won't change anything about your life. But if you put your faith in Jesus, he transforms you. So the idea here is that love is the only one of these virtues that we actually see playing out. You remember the scripture that says faith without works is dead? One of the paramount works of that faith is love. That's why we're supposed to love one another. That's why this works this way. Matthew 5.16 tells us that this is how the world is going to know that we're the disciples of Jesus, by our love for one another. But notice again the location of this virtue, love. Since we heard of your faith in Christ, that's the location of faith, Jesus, in Christ Jesus and the Holy Ones, Hagios, uh, John 13, 35, Jesus said, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples, right? The location of the Colossians' love, though, of what Paul is praising and thanking God for is this. Read it again with me. So the saints, to the saints and the faithful, holy ones and the faithful brethren in Christ, who are at Colossae, which uh, grace to you and peace from our God and God and Father, we give thanks to you and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. What is the, what is the location of their love? It's in the saints. It's for those people around them. We can't divorce this in the scripture. This is why, uh, this is why the scripture tells us if, we are, if we're really who Jesus says he is, we're going to obey those two paramount commands, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Love is the outplay of this very thing. So I hope that you can connect those dots. As we learned last week, this is what it means to follow God's ways. His philosophy, his traditions, and his principle. Before we get into that third one, make sure you know this. It is a man-made philosophy to say, that person irritated me, I'm going to stop loving them. It's a man-made philosophy. Why? Because that's love on your terms. That's love on your terms. God says forgive them 70 times 7. And that's even if your brother comes to you 70 times in a day. Just forgive them. Just keep forgiving them. It's so important that we get this concept of love. One of the greatest things I believe in our culture today that grieves the Holy Spirit is the idea of the fracturing of the church. We have split into so many different isolated groups hating each other secretly for this and for that when what we should do is love each other and walk with each other and try to shape each other and try to fight this good fight together. 
We're supposed to love God and love people. Thirdly, we have hope. Romans chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. Paul says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, which is the gospel. There's a couple of things that I want you to, I want you to notice here. Number one, a hope that is laid up, first thing you're going to be tempted to do is believe that first line. In heaven, for a long time, the idea here has been that there's this great by and by where we're all looking forward to going. After all, it does say that our hope is laid up in heaven. But when we look at the rest of the story of Scripture, what we learn is that God is going to make a new heaven and a new earth, and His holy Jerusalem is going to come down and God is going to dwell with His people. How many of you know that that's the case? Romans chapter, or Revelation chapter 21 verses 1 through 4 communicates it quite clearly. We begin to see a different picture when we put all of this together. We see that God in heaven is actually preparing a place for us and it has nothing to do with its location. He's preparing a place for us. And then he's going to bring it down to a new heaven and a new earth. Is there time when we will ascend and be with the Father for a a period of time? Yes, I, I believe that the scripture is clear on that. But the scripture also says he's creating this new heaven and new earth, and it's coming down. There's a renewing. There's a rebuilding. There's a a recreation, if you will, of what's going on. So I want us to understand that. Our, uh, Our hope is not in heaven. There's another stress for why I want you to hear me clearly. And that is far too many people want to go to heaven. They just don't want to meet God when they get there. How many of you have ever heard that statement, right? Heaven is not about your serenity, your nirvana, your peace away from all things troubling in life, although it will not come with pain and tears and turmoil. It is because you are in the presence of peace himself. You are in the presence of love itself. You cannot have heaven without God. This is why our hope has been declared to us within the gospel. And there are a lot of elements to the good news, but make no mistake, absolutely none of them detract from God himself or his holy ones dwelling with him. If you're hearing a gospel that makes much of heaven without the God who dwells there, it's not the gospel. So the third piece that I want you to see, the the location, final location of our hope. The location of our hope, it is not actually heaven. It is simply where it is being prepared. The location of our hope is in the promises that are revealed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's read it again, verses 5 through 8. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard In the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit. It is the gospel that contains our hope. That's why understanding the gospel, both on a simple level and on a mature level, is detrimental to our growth. So, what is this great gospel hope? Well, 
It's amazing. It includes salvation. It includes a future. It includes hope. It includes peace. All of that. Salvation, according, or the gospel according to Romans 1.16, is the power of God unto salvation. It's not pseudo good news. It actually changes things. God's word doesn't return void. Isaiah 55.11 or Numbers 23.19. Our word fails disturbingly, you know, with disturbing regularity, but God's continues to, uh, to be unthwarted. Hopefully, I think all of us see that it's important to heed Paul's instruction to the Colossians with regard to thinking man's philosophy versus God's philosophy in this as well. And here's why. Because the gospel is the only thing that changes people's lives. Your funny, nice, feel-good story doesn't change people's lives. Your creative ways to be novel with the gospel and try to change everything so that you can be a superstar pastor and better than everybody else? It's not communicating the gospel. The gospel is ages old, church. You know how many times the gospel has changed? Zero. It has never changed. In Titus, it says, not in Titus, in, in um, I'll get there. In Jude, it says that this is the gospel once delivered to all the saints. You know what that communicates? The gospel in its fullness was already communicated. You, we don't need help, <laughs> right? We don't need help. Can we illustrate the points of God's word? Can we, can we come up with creative things? Well, we're going to anyway, whether God wants us to or not, it seems. But the idea is the gospel is ages old. It doesn't need to be added to. And it sure doesn't need to be taken away from. The gospel is what changes people. And anything apart from the gospel is an insertion of man-made philosophy and ideas and traditions and principles. And it's no good. It's just no good. The gospel is what saved you. Did you know that? The gospel, that message of hope, it saved you. It transformed you. That's what the scripture says. Because what did that gospel promote? Hope, Jesus Christ, and his blood. Guess what you responded with? Faith, trust in Jesus. And guess what flows from that hope and that faith? Love. Love is what flows inside of all of our lives. I want you to see this deeper aspect of the gospel. And here's one more deeper aspect of the gospel. Read verses 3 through 8 with me. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith, in Christ Jesus, and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. Follow with me in verse 6. Which has come to you, just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. Church, tell me, what is bearing fruit and increasing? The gospel. The gospel is bearing fruit and increasing. Church, I, I want to warn you. I want to warn you that it is what increases. It is what bears fruit. Not you. Not you. 
God's word has power. I could stand here and plead with you all day until I felt that you got it. And meanwhile, most in the church would respond and say, we do get it, Nathan. Quit thinking so low of us. And I'm not telling you I'm thinking low of you. I'm simply telling you that based on our actions, we do not believe the gospel has the power of God unto salvation. Because we shut up every time somebody needs to hear it. We are so scared of this message. And here's what I want you to hear. You were changed by it. You have life because of that message. You might have worked 30 years to forget it, but you have life because of that message. If you really want to know why the culture is shrinking into oblivion, it's because we won't speak. And when we do, we just go, let me tell you a fluffy story about me. Your story doesn't change people. God's story does. I got no other way to put it except for bad, hard, ouch. We're obsessed with letting our new song lyrics speak to people about Jesus. We're obsessed with letting our new testimony speak about Jesus, except for his name never seems to show up in the testimony. We're wanting people to see the peaceful awesomeness of our life on Facebook and hoping that those people are going to look at us and go, what do I need to pray to be a Christian like you? They're not going to do it. They never have. When are they going to respond? When they hear the gospel. When are they going to respond? When the very thing that bears fruit is spoken. It's the only way it works, church. It's the only way it works. And what we're doing when we don't preach the gospel is the very reason Paul wrote Colossians. We're trusting in our man-made philosophy, which has the appearance of wisdom. It seems so good. All I have to do is just tell people how, how awesome my life is. They're going to want to know about Jesus. No, they won't. They won't, because they don't. The pastor that was in charge of our church. He was leading our church when we were kids. He, uh, he would start off every conversation with, what do you think about Jesus? What do you think about Jesus? How many of you know that wasn't the gospel either? Just really good segue. Better than most of our segues, right? <laughs> right? Really good segue. They wanted to print t-shirts for him and all this other stuff. You know, what do you think about Jesus? Well, when somebody responds with, I think he's a made-up fairy tale. Opportunity. <laughs> opportunity. But you want to know? You're only going to take that opportunity if you're confident in the gospel. You're only going to take that opportunity when you think God, the people are going to listen to you because of the power of God in you, because of the message that you have to speak. Our faith is in the wrong things, church, in many ways. Yes, we're faithful, we're walking after Jesus, but now it's time to walk after what he says. He says to preach his word. He says to tell everybody about his son. He says to tell everybody about that blood that washes us clean. He says to tell everybody about the fact that he was buried and three days later he rose from the dead and he beat death and the grave forever. 
God's philosophies are uncomfortable, aren't they, church? They're the only things that bear fruit. God's ways is faith. God's ways are faith, hope, and love. God gives hope through the gospel. Upon hearing that gospel, Colossians 1 6, Ephesians 1 3, order of salvation, we place our faith and trust in Jesus. And the result is love. And we need to love people enough to go preach the gospel. Any deviation from this, no matter how wise it seems, is man's attempt to distract from God's way. Church, I'm praying that we would become a repentant people. And by repentant people, I mean repenting of the fact that we, we keep trying to tell God a better solution. How many of you know that? Like, God, I got a better idea. Trust me. They'd listen if you just let me have my way. God goes, they ain't listening to you now, so <laughs> whatever. We've got all of these really good, seemingly good ideas, but they're human wisdom. What we need to do is know the gospel and preach the gospel. Know the gospel and preach the gospel. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.